This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio. The biggest risk for a big company is that they don't do big things, that what you do just becomes irrelevant. And the world changes around you. So the only way you can stay relevant is if you're willing to take some risk. And you're going to fall flat on your face a couple of times, but that's okay. You might not know Adam Mosiri's name, but I think you should. He's one of the most important people in tech these days. He's the new-ish CEO of Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. And Adam sits in one of the most influential seats in the history of tech. He's taking on the responsibility of leading one of the most popular social media platforms at a time where its power and influence over us is undeniably strong, for better and for worse. As CEO, Adam says he's focused on improving the well-being of Instagram's 1 billion monthly active users. And as he told me, he can relate to the complicated feelings many of us experience in today's hyper-connected world, having struggled with his own anxiety over the years. He's someone who seems to manage stress and chaos well. And I think that's a good thing, because Instagram and Facebook sit at the center of many complicated human issues these days between Russian interference in political elections, the debate on free speech and expression, and the larger implications of social media's impact on our mental health and well-being, I would say there's a lot to navigate, and none of it is black and white. I'm Lori Siegel, and this is First Contact. So I was thinking about how he's going to set this up, and I am very interested in having you here because I think you are probably 
one of the most influential leaders in tech and people don't really know you. No offense. None taken. I mean, I think they're changing that because you're you're getting out there a little bit more, but you are now leading Instagram, Mm -hmm. which is like, I mean, this is the future. And so I was doing a quick Google search of you. Oh, God. And it's so interesting to see like what people Google about you. Do you ever? No. Look, don't look I'm, at my pieces of paper. I'm curious what the yeah, Google. Don't look at them. Um, <laughs> it, nationality. Uh, you, American parent, and Israeli. Net worth. Oh, I didn't know you were going to answer them. Oh, net sorry. Wor- net worth. I'm going to keep that one confidential. Okay. Parents, wife, Instagram, email. Like that's the only kind of Google search, which is just. Very generic. Very generic, which I think is interesting because you're, you're kind of new on the job at Instagram. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just not a lot known about you. I guess not. At least personally. Yeah, I, I think I've been speaking publicly a lot for about half a decade, so a while. But the new role has provided me a platform where I am now reaching more people. But I think that I am, sure, a lot less well-known than a lot of people with similar roles. And what an extraordinary responsibility leading Instagram at a time where we all care so much about I think Facebook, but Instagram is like, is what so many folks are using in young people. And you're kind of at the, you're in the lead seat. You're in charge of well-being. You're in charge of the future. So it's a pretty big uh, role to step into. It's a fun role. It's exciting. It's a lot of responsibility as well, but uh, I enjoy it. So the podcast is called First Contact. And every guest we've had so far, I talk about my first contact with them. Mm -hmm. Our first contact, do you remember it? I think it was the interview we did... In a room called Dunder Mifflin in Facebook's office, I think. I didn't realize you were going to get that specific, but yes, um, it was. It was you had become the vice president of Newsfeed Mm -hmm. and Facebook was changing, was tweaking the algorithm. um, As we do. As you do. You were tweaking the algorithm to facilitate more meaningful interactions between people at the time. Yes. Remember that? Yeah. And we did a TV spot. I remember that the stools were high. And I didn't know, do my feet go on the floor or do they just dangle awkwardly? <laughs> yeah. And beyond that, I mean, it was like a pretty, it was like a pretty big deal that Facebook at the time was changing the algorithm and there were questions over like, is it going to impact the news business? And there were also these larger questions of like, are we less connected, more connected? And so it was like this really interesting moment. And you were in this new role that was pretty important. And so you were kind of speaking for the first time. That was our, our first contact. I think that your role is like the stakes are always high. Yeah, they've been high for a a bit now. That was an important time because we were trying to communicate something uh, proactively and before we actually even launched it. I think part of what we were learning at that moment at Newsfeed was that we needed to give a bit of a heads up for major changes. If you look at your history, it's like you were uh, in charge of Newsfeed during some of the most insane things that have happened with Facebook and some of the things that we all look at, you know, with a pretty skeptical eye. You look at what happened with Russian influence and manipulation. You look at um, this idea. And also, it's not even just limited to Facebook. These larger questions about the internet, whether it's filter bubbles, are we building social connections? Like, you were actually kind of at the forefront of all of this. I guess what I'm kind of getting at is it seems like you deal with chaos well. I was in charge of Newsfeed definitely in 2016 and 17 and um, half of 2018. And, you know, an immense amount of scrutiny came our way. And I left that with a a real focus on integrity and safety and well-being and a sense of responsibility there. And so for a long time, I ended up 
going into areas that were not working particularly well for a variety of reasons and then just trying to get them to a better place. I know that you study design and, and media and whatnot, but I, I wonder what about you and your childhood, you know, maybe led you to be kind of this person that is able to kind of go into some of these more interesting, hard, challenging environments. And, and I say this because I've covered Facebook for a long time, and a lot of people don't stay as long as you've stayed. And it's interesting to watch you having navigated this um, path and really ended up in this spot that's very, very influential. I think there's a lot in my childhood and also in my early career that shaped at least how I do what I do, but also the fact that I get to do what I do. My parents, my parents are divorced, so and I definitely, as a young, sort of overly confident, thinking I knew, understood the world as a 16-year-old, inserted myself into that process. I probably got some experience navigating conflict there, though I don't think I was particularly good at it, so I don't think I left with a lot of good lessons necessarily. What do you mean by that? I just, I don't, I mean, I just, I don't think it's good for any children to try to insert themselves in the middle of a divorce. Sure. I think it's good to be a child, even if you're 16. But I took a lot from my parents. My mom is an architect. Uh, she runs her own uh, practice. And architecture is design, fundamentally. Design is about problem solving. I think Charles Eames, I'm going to get it wrong, said design is the process of arranging elements to accomplish a specific purpose, I think was the language. So it's a very broad sense of design, but I grew up with that around. And so that's why I got into design and I use problem solving um, and sort of structured thinking every day in my job. And then my father is a psychotherapist. Whoa. Yeah. So he's a, he's Israeli. Um, he, an Israeli psychotherapist. An Israeli psychotherapist. My mom was an Irish Catholic. I mean, so no wonder you deal with conflict. Yeah. Well. well, they're pretty different sizes of the family. My mom is, is about as Irish as it gets. There's, um, it goes, she's got six brothers. Um, and my dad is an Egyptian Jew, born in Cairo, raised in Israel. Does parental consulting, marriage counseling, which I always thought was kind of fun because he's divorced twice. Um, but he's, turns out, you know, it's different when it's someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, he's very good at his job. And he's very, very emotionally intelligent. Yeah. Uh, and he's also very, very charming. And so I took a lot of sort of right brain and left brain from each of those parents. And I mm. feel like I use a lot of what I learned from them, um, if not every day, every week, for sure. And so you studied design at, in school, right? You This was always something you were really interested in. You actually started your own design firm? I did for beer money and rent money. <laughs> I So I studied at NYU at a school called Gallatin where you design your own curriculum. But I tried to create a curriculum around information design and information architecture and media studies more broadly. And I, at the same time, started a design consultancy. I think I was maybe halfway through my sophomore year when I started it. And I was doing freelance work here in New York City. I was working at the Architectural League of New York as an intern, I think. I met someone through there who got me to have the opportunity to apply to do to build a website for an, ar an architectural firm. And the firm who had done the work was interviewing to get this two different people for the website. One was me. I was 19 years old. Uh, and I think I told him it would cost, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars and take maybe a couple months. And then Pentagram, which is one of the most mm -hmm. prestigious design firms out there. And I'm sure it was, you know, an order of magnitude, more time and two orders of magnitude, more money. And they're like, look, we know this kid, he might be able to pull it together. And so that's actually how I started my firm because they, 
they asked me, can you do this? I said, I need three weeks. And I thought of the biggest number I could think of, which I think was $12,000. And then they said, yes. And I was like, "Uh oh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I should have asked for more money. And I hired all my roommates and I hired, I started working with this guy named Sidney Blank, who is, and, and then we, we did that project and then Sydney and I ended up starting a firm together. And that was really just to, you know, rent's expensive here. It was to pay rent while I was in school. Uh, and, you know, to, you know, eat and live in New York as a 19, 20, 21 year old. So, and you ended up at Facebook in 2008. How did you get the job? So I moved out West in 05 and I opened up a San Francisco office for that design firm. We called it Blank Mosseri. So the mm-hmm. two partners, last names. And... I had a bunch of friends starting to work in tech, and at first, this was maybe January of six. I was very dismissive. I was like, "I'm my own boss. Why would I want to do that? Yeah. That kind of thing." But over time, I I started to see how excited they were about their work. I was using Facebook more and more, and then Facebook launched a platform in '07 so that developers could build apps on top of Facebook. And I built an app called Boombox, which was a music sharing service. We didn't host any music, but we allowed you to upload links to MP3s and mm-hmm. then create playlists and share them with your friends. Eventually, I got a cease and desist from the Recording Industry Association of America, and I wasn't incorporated, so I just shut it down. Mm-hmm. But I got a taste for what it was like to build something. And by that, so as a, when you run a design firm, it's consulting. You have clients. yeah, And when you build something... Directly, you have, you know, users or people who use that product. It's very different. And you feel a lot more ownership and responsibility in the latter. And so I really liked that. And so then I applied. And I didn't get an interview. I couldn't get in. And then every month or two, I applied to Facebook again for about a year. And then wow. eventually... They I just it. kept rejecting you? Yeah. Just, yeah. A little... A little um, not always... A, Rejection as much as just like a not necessarily response mm. always. And they finally accepted you? I finally got an interview and I got the job. We were small, small though. We were a couple hundred people. But we, so we, but we weren't that small. We weren't a bunch of kids in a dorm room. This was, we had an HR department. We had probably 400 employees, that sort of thing. Um, and I got some exposure to Mark because I, I relatively quickly got some high profile projects. We redesigned Newsfeed actually. Uh, in mm-hmm. the end of 08 and launched it in the beginning of 09. And so I got some exposure to him. Um, and I think that over time we built up a relationship because, you know, it's been 11 going on 12 years now that I've been there and I've worked on a lot of different things over the years. And he, I think if anything in the early years, maybe I got a little bit more exposure because I was a bit of a hothead. So I was not at all. In what capacity? I just, the, I mean, emotional, passionate, arguing is that the, like, like your father, kind of, is that the Israeli? That's the Israeli side. Yeah. 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 No, that's the Israeli side. Oh, no, the Irish too. It's yeah, sort of both. It's sort of both. Uh, but I definitely was not hesitant to disagree or argue with him. What was your biggest disagreement? Back then? I mean, I don't remember. I mean, we argued about everything big and small. We had a really long debate about when we did, I think a couple years later, most recent, we introduced most recent, there were two feeds or one feed. We had a bunch of arguments about how to do that, but right? But before that, I remember arguing with him about little design details, like the spacing between stories in Newsfeed in 2008. Hmm. So we had a war. I mean, I was probably not picking my battles uh, well. Hmm. I'm sure I wasn't. Uh, And so I think I probably started to build a relationship with him through that. Going back to kind of those early years, I I remember covering Instagram, uh, the initial founders of Instagram. And I remember it was just even like there were like four or five of them when I first started. It was before they sold to Facebook. And it was... 
it was so interesting to watch this company and watch it sell to Facebook and watch just the influence of it and how extraordinary um, it became and also how like how much people loved them, you know, and, and not just Kevin, but also Mike, because they cared so much about the product and they cared so much about how it was designed and how it looked. And so I can imagine for you, you know, walking into walking in there. And, and I think the backstory for folks who don't know, there were some issues with the idea that Instagram was getting when when a lot of these companies were bought, whether it's Instagram or WhatsApp, the idea was that they were to remain more separate. That was kind of the early promise with Facebook. And there was tension because they started integrating more. And, you know, some of that special quality, um, there was fear that it was getting lost. There were debates over the product and, and whatnot. And so there were tensions. Kevin and Mike end up leaving. Right. They, they did September um, oh September eighteenth. Yeah, September, which is a was a really big deal, right? Because Instagram is one of the most interesting parts of Facebook. It probably wasn't the easiest role to walk into. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, maybe backing up a little bit. So I joined Instagram in May of two thousand eighteen, so six months before they left, mm-hmm. and as the head of product. And I joined for a, a bunch of different reasons, but. One of the main ones was Kevin and Mike. I'm a big fan of both of them. They are they're some of the most thoughtful product leaders I've ever worked with. And I just was really impressed with that. And so I also joined because I had been running Newsfeed for, I was running and running it for the previous two years, but I was more or less, I was the head of product for Newsfeed for three years before that. So about half a decade. I had two little boys. And as big a job as the head of product as Instagram is, it was a 50-person PM team and it just seemed like a bit more of an opportunity to have some work-life balance. Hmm. And so I moved over in May. And then six months later, the whole thing, the whole plan kind of blew up. We've got to take a break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, more with our guest, Adam Mosseri. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. 
I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Kevin was on paternity leave, and he came in one day. I didn't know he was going to be there, and we all were talking. And then they told us they were resigning. I was talking to um, both directly and indirectly to Mark and to Chris Cox, my manager at the time, about how they needed to either pick someone or p- at least announce a process for how they would pick someone because we can't just not have this leader role clarity for an extended period of time. I found out a day or two later that I would be interviewing the next day. And so they knew I wanted the role. So Why they, did you want it? Because it just seemed like too big an opportunity to pass up. I mean, it was exactly at odds with the work-life balance thing I was going for six months earlier. And, I'm, um, and I didn't want Mike or Kevin to leave. You can't replace founders. This is something that's just very unique to that role. Mm-hmm. And they are nice. They are really loved by the organization. Um, still to this day, but just to be, to have the opportunity to be working on something with so much cultural relevance with, that has so much responsibility coming along with it, but also the opportunity to shape it in a way, you know, particularly given my focus on well-being was just really, really appealing. And so I interviewed and then a couple of days later, um, I got a phone call and they said, the role's yours. And then, you know, we announced a few days after that. This all happened within the span of a week. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting you talk about you wanted it because this idea of well-being. I think that's really important. Even for, we talk about the media company I'm launching. I, I, I think, you know, having bolstered a lot of this technology, having covered folks like Kevin and Mikey early in my career, 
there is this moment where it certainly seems like um, people feel, you hear this all the time, this is not a new question to you, but like people feel more lonely and depressed and isolated. I mean, I sometimes, I'm checking my phone at all hours, God help me. And, and Instagram is maybe the worst offender of all, right? Um, I feel weird sitting across from you saying that, but no, like, I it's like, about it. yeah, no, I'll, I mean, I'll talk about it, right? <laughs> like, let's talk about it. But no, I, I mean, I think like, like check in, you know, now you've follow me, like check in if I'm posting like eight or 10 photo or stories on Instagram, like that probably means I'm not okay. Like, do you know that? I I don't know if we know that exactly. Like, is there research around that? There's you, definitely you, research around all of it. I, I mean, this is a pivotal time for our industry. I think the existential question facing any social media product or platform is like, are you or are you not good for people? So take me into the room. So like Adam goes to Instagram, becomes CEO of Instagram and decides on your watch to hide likes or to test out hiding likes. I mean, that's a pretty ballsy move. Let's be honest, right? Like that could impact business and you have a lot of people kind of questioning a little bit, but that is a pretty interesting move, right? Whose idea was it? I think it was bubbling up in a few different parts of the organization. I think policy had been talking about it unbeknownst to me. And then in New York, um, it was Megan and Melissa. Melissa is a researcher. Mm -hmm. They had taken the idea and tried to make it real because, so may not because, but just a bit more context. When I joined, I spent a bunch of time trying to beef up our safety and integrity and well-being efforts even before I became the head of Instagram. And Part of that was focusing on the the well-being team and getting them all the support they needed. And I also tried to make it very clear to the broader organization, to everybody who works at Instagram, that well-being isn't a problem that a few people who work on a well-being team in a corner go and solve. It's something that we all need to consider. And I think that helped the home team, which is what we call the team that works on feed and stories, um, get the space that they needed to say, okay, we want to do this thing. Yeah. They want to make like counts private. The idea to make Instagram a bit less pressurized, make it less of a contest. But they didn't tell me about it. And so it wasn't my idea. They started working on it in earnest uh, and presumably they were going to tell me at some point, but it came up when, so every Friday I do a Q&A with the entire Instagram mm -hmm. organization worldwide coffee and Q&A. And so usually I open up with a few remarks about what's top of mind for me. We have one or two presentations and then we open it up. And they were asked to present at the Q&A. So they kind of got outed because they were like, okay, now we got to tell him because he's about to find out about this at the same time as the rest of the Instagram team right. does. Uh, I wonder, I don't know if they were a little nervous to tell me or they wanted to make sure it was in mm. a good place before they did. <laughs> but I thought it was amazing. I was like, well, that's, that's brilliant. Uh, and so since then I've helped them shape the product, hopefully, by giving them feedback. But more than that, just tried to really help them see around corners and work down all of the issues and essentially just block and tackle. Because if the change is big, there's nothing but reasons not to do it. But I just believe it's I mean, by the way, do. but you're saying all this in such broad terms. That's a very big deal, you putting that up. Weren't you kind of scared? No. The I mean, why take the job if you don't? take the opportunities like this when Be they present Because they present a lot of people take the job and don't take big risks, especially at big companies where there's a lot at stake. But the biggest 
risk for a big company is that they don't do big things. That they, it's not that for us, it's not that a competitor necessarily comes by and does what we do better than what we do. That we do have really strong competition right now, particularly with Snapchat and TikTok. But the biggest risk really is that what you do just becomes irrelevant, and the world changes around you. So the only way you can stay relevant is if you're willing to take some risk, and you're going to fall flat on your face a couple of times, but that's okay. There's a lot of design that goes into human psychology and when it comes to technology and like actually building spaces that that don't make us feel as bad about ourselves. And I think that's stuff that you guys are actually really at the forefront of and have a responsibility about. What else are you guys thinking about in those rooms? Well, Reveal it with me. Yeah, yeah. I'll let you in on all of yeah. our secrets. I mean, what else is that? I mean, but so hiding legs, like so what else? Hiding legs is a big deal. So I don't want to, just to be clear, I'm very excited about the uh, the the prospect is not we aren't it's not final like yeah. it's possible we won't do it I'm very invested in the project it's probably the project I spend the most of my time on so there's so bullying is one that we've focused a lot on I think we have a unique opportunity there given our scale and the fact that we're relatively strong with young people but also it's prevalent on the on the platform and I don't think we are ever going to be done working on bullying that said I'd like to spin up another effort that's more proactive in nature so it's mm -hmm. not just about identifying a problem and removing it. Because by the way, the work we're doing on bullying is not just trying to identify bullying and remove it. We're trying to also empower the targets of bullying to stand up for themselves and take some power back. The question is like, where can we uniquely create a lot of value? Where, we, where might we be a problem? Social comparison is another compelling one. We're already obviously playing in this space with like counts becoming private, but that is a much broader issue that I don't pretend to understand in detail. Uh, excessive or problematic use, so just using it too much. So and maybe experimenting with a way to tell people when they could take a break or something? Yeah, and we built some features around helping you manage your time on Instagram. We built these before we knew that Apple and Google were building them at the operating system level. Well, I'm sure I'm happy they did. I wish we had known so we could have built something else, but you know, it is what it is. One of the things that I want to be honest with you about is we have these debates sometimes about do we focus on well-being issues for you know the average 15-year-old? Or do we do focuses on the issues that creators and public figures experience? Because they're very, very different. Mm. When I talk to creators, people who use Instagram to reach tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people, is they don't worry about their likes as much as they worry about their comments. Creators are a huge part of what makes Instagram unique, but we're almost always going to prioritize the 15-year-old over yeah. the creator. Sure. Um, I wonder, I think I like asked you about this before. It's weird, but you know, there's so much technology can determine, right? Like the types of word we, words we use are happy words, sad words. Um, you know, I, we had someone in here earlier talking about conversational AI and like how it can determine if we're falling into depression or if we're sad or happy. Um, go with me here. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. along for the ride. Would it be possible to determine like would Instagram, I don't know if Instagram would ever do this, but to determine like if people are posting and not as extreme as like, okay, we think you're going to hurt yourself, right? Which I know Facebook has explored doing certain things with you if you actually make a threat to your own life. But, you know, there is the way for data to show if we're falling into depression, if we're unhappy, if, you know, things aren't going as well. That is safe to say, right? Like you can, based on data, understand people's mental health, right? Is that something... Instagram would ever be interested in, like being able to determine if someone is happy, sad, or, you know, being able to, to have any type of data on that? It's definitely an area that we're interested in exploring and we already do explore. I think it's one where you got to be, you need to be really careful because you're talking about some very personal, very private 
matters. We do this, so we definitely already, both on Instagram and on Facebook, try and identify people who might be at risk of hurting themselves. And if it looks particularly dire, we will contact local law enforcement or some local agency and try to get them direct help. But we do this also for, on the on the aggression side or the bullying side, as someone being combative in comments, et cetera. We've done a bunch of work to try to understand tone and intent there. But less so on are you depressed broadly or do you have anxiety broadly? I think it's an interesting area to explore we have to be thoughtful about which ones we take on because we want to make sure that we take on areas where we actually have an opportunity to make a difference. Mm. And so for issues like anxiety broadly, like I struggle with anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety. There's a question about where where and how Instagram can play a role. Are we exacerbating it? If so, then how can we make sure that we don't do that? But can we go further than that? Can we reduce someone's anxiety? That's a hard question to answer because... I mean, I'll speak personally. My anxiety has to do with a lot more than my use of Instagram. It has to do with having little kids. It has to do with work-life balance. It has to do with my job. It has to do with my family, et cetera. So not to be dismissive at all, we just want to make sure that whatever we decide to do, we have the capacity to do really well and to actually make a difference. I was going to ask, I remember when I was doing a piece on depression um, for my show at CNN, and I remember someone turning around the the table on me and saying, well, why do you care about like depression? And I, I remember saying to him, um, he was a CEO coach, I guess I was asking for this. I was yeah. like, well, you know, it was like depression and suicide. This is important to me because I've interviewed founders who's, um, who are their parents of founders who've committed suicide. And he's like, do you know what you just did there? And I was like, what? He's like, that was bullshit. <laughs> what? He was like, that was bullshit. Like, why do you really care about this? And I'm like crying on a couch and I'm like, well, you know, like mental health is really important to me. Like it's in my family. It's, you know, it's something that is super important. And so I guess I ask you as someone who like clearly has grown up and I I think your, your past, even though we don't get, we didn't really get into it. It seems really interesting. You know, why is mental health important to you, you spoke a little bit about anxiety, but why why is this kind of stuff personal to you? It's a good question. Probably a number of different reasons. So the more generic answer, which you're, you're who is it, a, a coach? CEO coach. Jerry CEO Klein, coach. You should meet him one day. Yeah, he would say this is bullshit. Uh, is just that I do think one of the big questions right now for social media is how does it contribute to mental yeah. health? And that's laddering up to, are you are you not good for I, people? Yeah, and I don't think that's bullshit. I think that's very, I think that's and really And so I'm relevant. trying to respond to that. But personally, I mean, my dad being a psychotherapist probably has something to do with my sensitivity to, you know, mental health issues. I mean, he's supported all sorts of people in all sorts of difficult positions um, for as long as I can remember. And so that probably has something to do with it. Uh, what I've wrestled with personally, I'm sure. I mean, I've got my own, you know, anxieties, but also just motivators, things that I've struggled with over the years. And so, I mean, this isn't as interesting necessarily, but one of the ways I manage anxiety is I just invest a lot in in health. So I, I'm always on some weird diet. I have been on, I've been, I love coffee. I've been drinking decaf coffee for f- almost five years, <laughs> which is wild. I, you name a tactic, meditation, exercise of different types, yoga, et cetera. I've like tried with all the things. And so I actually try to take the anxiety I have and funnel that energy into 
sort of personal well-being, self-care. And so that probably at some unconscious or subconscious level is a feedback loop that's working that I want to apply somewhere else. So I, I believe that most people do things that work for them. So if you, I don't know, if you yell at people all the time, you probably do that because at some level that worked for you at a young age and then you got this positive feedback loop and then you kept on doing it. So I have had this positive feedback loop over the last five years where my job has become very, very intense. I've become a father. I've got two little boys. Boys are, little boys are amazing, but they're also quite a handful. Uh, and the way I've managed that is through investing in my own well-being. And so I probably, at some subconscious level, I'm, I'm projecting that on my mm -hmm. job. And to say that one way to manage the questions and the anxiety and the scrutiny and the rest of it is just to invest in care. And if you do that, you know, the, the belief, which is probably not articulated explicitly in my brain, but just sort of more in my body is good things will happen. Are there ever moments, because I think people look at you and who you are and think it seems pretty, even though it's a hard job, it seems like you kind of have it made in many ways. Are there moments that you could go to that you would say are like some of your harder moments career-wise or even when you talk about personal stuff and like, and dealing with some of the anxiety or the, you know, some of the personal costs that comes along with some of the stuff you're trying to tackle. Is there like a moment you could go back to that you think this was a particularly hard moment? There are, there are a number of moments. I don't want to sound, I try really hard never to complain though about my job because my job is, yes, it's very intense, um, but it is an amazing opportunity. There's a lot of people mm -hmm. who would kill for the opportunity. And I try to remind myself of that most every day and be grateful for that. So I, I, I'm definitely very, I do have a lot of gratitude generally, and, I, and a lot of that has to do with the role I have and the opportunities that it affords. If you want to understand a little bit about what the anxieties or what the costs or what the downsides might be of a role like this, I think it probably, there's some that are generic and there's some that are probably more specific to me. Mm -hmm. Generic ones include, I mean, security implications. One thing's, you know, when, when you have... Your, you or your family being threatened either explicitly or implicitly or physically or online, like that's yeah. part of the job at this point. And that is something that I did not even have on my radar only a few years ago. So that's a big one, particularly if you've got young kids. And that's happened recently. Yeah. yeah. Um, and some of that's been covered, but a lot of it hasn't. Yeah. And we, do, we generally try not to talk about it that much because you don't want to inspire others. Yeah. Then there's... For me, more personally, I mean, actually, it's kind of weird. So another generic one would just be like the scrutiny. Like I get out there in the world and I talk a lot. I think that we need to be out there more because the conversation is going to happen with or without us. That can be intense. I've been asked on TV to resign. I've been shown a video of moms telling me to stop killing their children uh, while being recorded without even giving a heads up. Like this is part of the job. That actually I don't find as taxing because usually when you are, when someone's coming at you like that, they're usually motivated by something good. They care deeply about a specific issue. And so I can tap into that and, I, and I've gotten just used to those types of experiences from so many crazy mm -hmm. um, roles over the years. But that I think can be taxing. For me personally, it's different though. The, I... I have the hardest time when I feel like I'm failing my people. I care a lot about the people who work 
uh, for me and with me. I think of leading any organization as, and so it'll sound a bit corny, but like a family, you want to, you want to understand that you're in this together. You want to create space for dissent. You want to create, you want to create real emotional support, not just, you know, rational support, because that will be how you get the best work. That'll be how you attract the best people. That'll be how you keep the best people. And when I feel like I'm failing at that, when I feel like I'm not doing right by my people, if I didn't see around a corner for them, or if I changed my mind on something and I thrashed them, or if I didn't provide an opportunity for them, that that for me personally is really rough. And then similarly, if you expand that out to the, all the people who use Instagram, when you, when you fuck up, when you make a mistake, uh, you make a decision to prioritize one problem over another, and it turns out you were wrong. That is, I mean, that's rough. Like, you know, you, you, we are, there are a billion people that use Instagram. So they're going to be inevitably some really dark uses and things that happen on the platform. That I think is hard, but not as hard as when something comes up where you feel like you could have seen it coming or you would have made a decision differently in hindsight. We've got to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, Adam talks Facebook stance on political ads. I ask him, what if his boss, Mark Zuckerberg, is wrong about the whole thing? Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always gonna have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host. 
Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, there's the debate happening right now over political ads. Um, Facebook has said it won't uh, police political ad content if it's false. You have Twitter has come into the game by saying that they are uh, banning political ads. Google's now saying they won't allow political ads to be directed to specific audience based on uh, based on certain things. I guess I go back to this idea of like, I've covered this company for a long time. And oftentimes Mark Zuckerberg is right. You know, like he was ahead on knowing that WhatsApp was going to be huge. He bought Instagram when people weren't necessarily paying attention, right? Like he was known. I think before we all started talking about Facebook in this way, Mark Zuckerberg was known for his foresight, right? It's just these human issues that seems to be where sometimes Facebook really wades into, into problems. Do you worry sometimes that your boss just gets it wrong? I worry that anybody gets it wrong. I mean, no one can be right all the time. So I worry about that. I worry about that I get it wrong sometimes, too, for the calls that I make. But particularly with the political ads, I know even some of the employees at Facebook have said that they don't agree with this. I mean, do you do you agree with the stance as it is now? I do. The, I think it's tough, though. I think it's the least bad option, which is different than it being an option that I'm excited about. I think if you look at the other things that people are doing— I think some of them are still considering Twitter banning all political ads. I don't think makes sense because political ads quickly bleed into issue ads. You can't ban like, you know, some politician doing something along the lines of blue lives matter and still have black lives matter. You can't have climate change activists be on there um, if you're going to like not allow political discourse because climate change is inherently a political issue at this point. Now, Twitter has since tried to modify their policies Mm -hmm. to allow room for some of these issues, so I appreciate that. I've talked to Jack about this. I'm not a fan of—I don't believe in the specific solution he's trying to come up with, but I really believe uh, that he's being principled, and I commend the boldness. And so I have a lot of respect for that. I think that that, though, just has more costs and benefits. And so I'm more on the, okay, we need to allow political ads to exist on the platform because they're going to happen no matter what, and you you don't want to throw out everything. There's a lot of good that comes from political advertising. Uh, it's not necessarily all campaigns. There's a lot of issues, any issue you care about. You know, do you care about gay rights? Do you want to campaign for a proposition that legalizes gay marriage? Like, you can't do that if there's no political ads. And I just think that's that's worth it. So I push more on the other side, which is, I feel like we have been talking about too little, which is the transparency side. One of the things that's scary about online advertising is you can't see it. Everyone is watching relatively the same TV, you know, a few decades ago. You can kind of tell what's going on. 
we've done a lot on this. I think we're in a better place than any platform is on political ads transparency, but I think we're not in a place that I'm happy with yet. It's still hard to navigate and understand what's going on. So I kind of want to put pressure more on the other side of the equation. What Google's doing with limiting audience size for campaign ads, but not political ads more broadly, I think is interesting. It is a little bit weird to let everyone talk about politics in a way that you don't let the politicians talk about politics. Um, mm. But that's from the one where I think um, there's something in there that's probably worth considering. So I don't pretend like we have it exactly right. But my main thing is these issues are nuanced. We oversimplify these things all the time. And I'm, it's not lost on me that Facebook and Instagram have contributed to a world where there is no room for nuance. I mean, it certainly seems like they're nuanced. And it also sometimes having covered the company for a long time seems like it takes other people saying certain things for the company sometimes to... Too often, yes. ...to understand. I mean, more so, by the way, in the time of covering it, they're thinking about these things from within. But oftentimes it does take, you know, other people saying these things. Absolutely. And I, I just think all of these things have, have nuance and have trade-offs. You can't have full privacy and have full security. Like mm -hmm. those things are at odds at some level. And, you know, people can want multiple things and multiple things can be valuable that compete. And so you pick an issue and there's always, a, there's always two sides to the story and we always pretend like there's just one. That's one of the reasons why I'm out there talking a bunch more is not necessarily to convince people to agree with me specifically, but to try to shed some light on the thinking and the rationale, because we debate almost all these things. It's It'll happen that something turns into a press cycle that we didn't debate before, but more often than not, we did debate it. We might not have ended up on the right solution, but we had that debate internally. So of course, some a lot of people or some people internally disagree on certain policies. And I mean, it's kind of crazy being the Instagram CEO. I it's just, completely nuts. I just can imagine... Um, like, let people step into your life for a second. Like, I'm imagining you now have, like, weird celebrity. You're not, like, someone, I think, who hangs out. I think last time I said this with you, I was like, I saw you at, because I follow you on Instagram, like, the Met Ball, the Met Gala. Did I even say it right? Is it the Met Ball or the Met Gala? The gala. I'm, by the way, I'm so uncool. Did you just correct me and say it's the gala? Like, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the Instagram CEO. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, I The Met Gala. Like, you're at the Met Gala now, like, What's the craziest experience you've had as the Instagram CEO? Ooh, interesting. I don't know. I, I I still feel like I have to remind myself that it's my job because it just seems so... You get sucked into it. So you're, so you're focused on the day-to-day. -day. You're like, how am I going to get what I've done when I need to get done today? We're yeah, going to have this. but I bet you still have crazy experiences. Oh, crazy experiences. Uh, okay. Like, I'm sure people say weird things to you. I'm sure celebrities approach yes. you. Yes. Like, Come on. Those things. Okay, so we want a weird one. Okay, we'll do a Met. We'll do a Met Met Gala okay. one. So the Met is an interesting... The Met, for those of you who don't know, is sort of like the Super Bowl of fashion. And I went last year, and that is... And it was a very interesting experience for a lot of reasons. One, actually, I'll share is... And then I'll get into a funny story, is... So most public figures and celebrities they are used to traveling around with a lot of support, with a sort of entourage of sorts. And you can't do that at the Met. You just, you're just tight guest list. It's just you. Mm -hmm. And so you see people stripped of their support structures, of the people that they believe in and that they like, you know, lean on. Like all these celebrities who have yeah. like 20 people around at all times. Yeah. And so then you have none. And so some totally fine, you know, full, super confident, just walk up, this like the, the the red carpet is like a hundred steps and it's 
on you've got cameras on both sides. So it's supposedly, I don't know, because I've only been on one red carpet, but it's supposedly mm-hmm. the most intimidating red carpet in the world. And it, But others become very frightened and they become very human all of a sudden because you see them in this moment of vulnerability. <laughs> and usually you see them on the big screen or their TV or whatever it is. And yeah. all of a sudden they're like stripped of their support network and they're people. Right. And they're people who just like you who are facing, I don't know, a thousand photographers screaming at them. And for me... No one gives a shit what I'm wearing, so it's fine. I can just walk up the stairs and people are like, sir, excuse me, excuse me, sir. Can you move out of the way? Can you move out of the way? <laughs> you know, like Mariah Carey's mind. Yeah, well, it was, it was, it was Katy Perry, oh, actually, okay. who was a chandelier who was in front of me. Oh, because this was like, was this camp? What was the theme? Camp. Oh, camp. See, I am hip. I Campy, know. you are definitely hip. Okay. You pretended not to know it was the gal. You know it was I, the gal. I didn't know. Go ahead. <laughs> and so she was a chandelier. So And so that actually relates to the story. So then I was... I was in the thing and, you know, you're talking to people and someone told me Katie, as in Katy Perry, wants to talk to you about making light counts private. Mm. And I was like, oh God, because I, at that point I was very worried that a bunch of creators are going to be really angry about this. They matter a lot to us. They really are what mm-hmm. makes Instagram special in so many ways. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to get yelled at by a chandelier. <laughs> because she was dressed as a chandelier. Right. And so I walk over there and she's not a chandelier. She's a burger. She's in a, she's literally a burger. She's in a giant hamburger costume. It's about three and a half feet in diameter. And she's got lettuce and it's flapping everywhere. It's like a whole thing. And so I'm like, okay, now I'm going to get yelled at by a burger. So I'm like, stay on your game. Don't smile. Like you got to like, this is your job. This is your job now. This is now you're your the, job. You're the head of Instagram. <laughs> Having uh, likes, it comes with a price. You could be yelled at Katie. At she didn't yell. Her. She was super supportive. She said, how can I help? Wow. And I was like, so I was thrown off my game three ways. <laughs> and so I was just like, oh, God, hang on. And they're like, I don't know. Like, we were just a little early in the process. <laughs> uh, and then I like, and then I went home many hours later, and I was like, that was, that's my job now, is to think you're going to get yelled at by a chandelier, but be praised by a burger. Uh, and so I try to... I try to write these stories down because they try to because I'm gonna forget a bunch and I'll look back at this time of my life and probably think about all the things I did wrong, but also what a ride it was. And so I don't know. I think it's good to try to hold on to the stories. Do you think that this is your end game? Ooh, that's a really good question. So it wasn't my plan. Mm-hmm. My plan. I never had a really thoughtful plan. I I sort of mostly jumped between jobs when. I thought it would be interesting to do so, and I feel like I learned a lot when I did those things. Uh, more recently, I thought I would do this for a while. It's a big job. It's not something you just do for a year or two. Uh, and then maybe go run something else, and then maybe get more involved in some sort of cause that I believe in. That was sort of like the rough outline. But I have a lot of friends who are deeply involved in causes, um, all sorts of things. Um, and... One, I was talking to one of my best friends recently, and his he was like, look, I get that. He actually spends most of his time focused on climate change. And he's like, if you want to do that, I'm happy to support you. Maybe not climate change specifically, but like, you know, I can help you by sharing other things that I've learned about what to do, not to do, et cetera. But he said, you might have an opportunity now to affect more change than in any cause you get involved in, whether you're you know, even if you're raising money or running a thing, like you, it's hard to actually have as much opportunity for influence as you have now. And so you might not be able to play in all of the spaces that you might be the most passionate about. You might, if you're lucky. But you need to think long and hard about the opportunity you'd be giving up 
if you really care about leaving the world a bit of a better place. And so that really resonated. So he totally fucked mm-hmm. with my plans. So and now I don't know what my plan is. I'm trying to figure it out. Hmm. Do you think you're, um, the Instagram you're building right now is going to make your children more or less lonely? Less, I think. That doesn't mean it doesn't make anybody lonely. But I mean, I have, I have we talk about my parents. I've got siblings and my, they're both really creative. My brother is a musician and a film scorer in LA. My sister is a furniture designer in Berlin. And I stay close to them through Instagram every day. And that actually, I mean, they're two of the people who matter to me most in my life. It's like my kids, my wife, my siblings, and my parents. And that helps me feel less lonely. That doesn't mean that I can't have the opposite experience or someone else doesn't. But I think about that too. I think about, I mean, they're so young right now, but, you know, in 10 years, roughly, when they start to be able to use Instagram, they're not allowed right now. Then, because they're four and two, um, and you have to be 13, will what will their experiences be like and then when they're 30 or 40 what will they think about the fact that i worked on this thing the decisions made behind closed doors in silicon valley affect all of us whether we realize it or not small changes in code and updates in design Instagram hiding likes, or Facebook stance on political ads. It impacts us, our democracy, our well-being. And these days, the stakes couldn't be higher. Ultimately, these decisions are made by people, not code. And I think it's time we get to know them a bit better. I'm Lori Siegel, and this is First Contact. For more about the guests you hear on First Contact, sign up for our newsletter. Go to firstcontactpodcast.com to subscribe. Follow me. I'm at Lori Siegel on Twitter and Instagram. And the show is at First Contact Podcast. If you like the show, I want to hear from you. Leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. First Contact is a production of Dot 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 Media, executive produced by Lori Siegel and Derek Dodge. Original theme music by Xander Singh. Visit us at firstcontactpodcast.com. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. 
I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.